Hey, everybody, welcome to Skeleton Keys. I'm Tori Yatesor. And I'm John Booker. And together we are going to try to unlock the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. And today we are going to talk about a figure that I think is probably the most present in modern day culture from Oof, mythology. That's a big statement, Tori. I, I just feel like he's everywhere. Yeah, I I cannot disagree with you. Clearly, on this episode of Skeleton Keys, we are focused on Tom Hiddleston. He's everywhere in pop culture. Let's talk about his myth. (laughs) No, we're not talking about Tom Hiddleston, but we are talking about the character he plays, Loki. I am so so excited to talk about Loki. Oof, me too. Because... The story of Loki, as we know it in the Marvel films, is very well known. Yeah. But the story of Loki, the deity, the Norse god, is not as well known. Where he came from, what he represents. That's kind of what's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because I I love how mythological figures are getting play in pop culture. I love it. You know I love it. Also, I don't think people are able to differentiate you know, because most people don't have enough of a background in myth to to know, oh, that's purely a creation of the Marvel universe as far as, you know, the, the way this character may be portrayed. But I think there's also a very decent argument then that says this is just the continuing of the myth making around this character. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think we've talked on here before about how myth pulls from the different people who encounter it. It's always growing. It's always evolving. So the myth of Loki, while not the original that's coming from the Eddas, it's a new myth. It's grown. It's reaching a new demographic that wouldn't typically care to learn about the Loki of Norse mythology. Yeah. And you bring up the Eddas, just for the 10 second uh, uh, description here for anybody that's not familiar. Probably a lot of our audience is familiar, but if you're not familiar, a great deal of what we know about Norse mythology comes from the Eddas. There's the Prose Edda, which is a textbook type uh, document from the 13th century. But there's also then the Poetic Edda, which is a collection of anonymous poems that we're not sure who wrote. Uh, and, And in these poems, we learn all about these different mythological figures. So as you hear Tori and I referring to the Prose Edda and the Poetic Edda, it, it is really the primary source for a great deal of what we know about Norse mythology, including Loki. And what's really interesting about Loki in Norse mythology and in its modern iteration with Marvel is that, yes, he's this god who's a trickster. Yes, he's the god of mischief. A lot of times he's the bad guy. He's a shapeshifter. These are all things that are the same in the Eddas. But what I think is really interesting is that there is kind of an anti-hero that still trickles down from those Eddas in the past to now. That has remained the same. And I think that's a big part of why Loki is such, I don't want to say a revered figure, but a beloved figure by so many. Yes, I think you're right. And, you know, anti-heroes, we, we almost take for granted that anti-heroes are just a part of modern storytelling now. 
But it hasn't always been that way. Antiheroes for a long time uh, were, were frowned upon in storytelling. And they, they were there, but we certainly didn't discuss them nearly as much as we discussed heroes. You know, we lived in this age of heroism for a long, long time. And we could argue we're still very much in that age of heroism. But our, our modern storytelling, especially, uh, you know, with the modern novel, with serialized television, uh, even with, you know, characters uh, like we find on Orange is the New Black or, or Walter White in Breaking Bad, Tony Soprano, these type characters, you know, began to, to reflect our society in a way that we could better explore the anti-hero without the sort of judgments that we would have had about characters like that in the past. And I think Loki's story, which of course, even in the past, he did not some great, some not so great things. However, I always think about in the story of the Eddas, basically Loki does some shady stuff and (laughs) the God of light, Balder... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is killed by his brother. <laughs> I just say some shady things. <laughs> and in retribution, the gods kill his kids in yeah. front of him. <laughs> right. And so I think there is an aspect where you're like, okay, this person's supposed to be the villain, but the good guys are doing this awful thing to him as well. Yeah. How am I supposed to reckon that? And I yeah. think Norse mythology does have a tendency to kind of show that murky in between. Right. Yeah. I I completely agree in that murky in between actually filters down into a lot of different aspects of storytelling, including a lot of the assumptions we would make about, um, you know, things like gender identity. Uh, because, you know, in the some of the poems, you know, Loki will change genders in some of the poems, which the, the new Marvel series explores with this, this idea of Loki and a female version of, of Loki falling in love with each other. Oops, spoiler alert. Spoilers. But- there will be spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> there will be spoilers. Um, but but it's interesting, you know, because we, we'll talk in a few minutes about the trickster archetype. And, and in some ways, we see the trickster archetype being this gender fluid type character also in First Nations mythology with uh, the native peoples of to the United States. Many of their, well, not many, but several of their liminal characters that, that float between worlds are these trickster characters uh, that experience the same sort of gender fluidity. So, you know, Norse mythology, in some ways, we, we look at it and we say, wow, that, that feels very patriarchal. And mm-hmm. it is. It mm-hmm. certainly is. Odin is this father, patriarchal, you know, All god. Father. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, uh, there are some really progressive, ahead-of-their-time ideas, especially when it comes to uh, ideas about gender fluidity in characters like Loki. And, and I think that's worth mentioning, you know, because it allows us to explore characters like Marvel is doing in the series in really, in ways that seem ahead of it, its time, you know? The way that Loki functions gives writers or gives creators a little bit more leeway than they would maybe with Thor. Where yeah. Thor, I think they tend to keep on the good guy. Um, it's a definitely a more patriarchal view of what a hero is supposed to be. I love Thor. I'm not saying anything yeah. bad about Thor. <laughs> Thor's great. 
We um, know you love Thor. We know it. <laughs> I love Thor. But I think with Loki, you can explore all these different aspects of who he is because he has been these things. He has been a, a father, a uh, spider, just like a Nazi. We've talked about another trickster um, archetype on this show. Um, he has been a mother when he turned into a mare. And so I think that's what's really interesting is we can kind of dive into all these aspects of who he is and see what evolves from these different identities. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you you bring up that that relationship with Thor and you bring up Thor and while there are a number of uh shall we say motifs uh, around Loki, you know, in the way that Marvel explores those motifs that are the creation of Marvel and we don't find those really anywhere in uh the Eddas, the beef that Loki has with Thor, that does come straight from the poems. That is something we find in the poems. These are two characters that did not always get along and two characters that did have issues with each other. And it's interesting because when we look back, like we were saying a few minutes ago, at this anti-hero of Loki that people really did not investigate as thoroughly as we do now and didn't tell as many expansive stories about as we do now, this really starts to change in the 1830s when Jacob Grimm produces the first major theory about Loki. And he starts to explore this character, and he advances this idea that Loki was a god of fire. And this fits very much in with this trickster archetype that will later emerge as an idea about Loki. It also connects Loki to a number of other ancient stories about the, the these fluid liminal characters that we, we again, really attribute a lot to, of the same ideas to trickster archetypes. It's not though until the late 1950s that a Dutch theorist and religious studies scholar produces this this theory about Loki being a trickster figure. It's not that anyone discovered new writings about Loki, but uh, the the way that we understand Loki as being in the tradition of all these other trickster archetypes and figures really doesn't come along until 1959. Uh, so it's a fairly recent idea, but you also have to think, you know, the idea of the way we articulate archetypes, you know, in, in the vein of, of Jung and Freud and these thinkers, that's a fairly recent idea as well. You know, this this is not something that existed in the 1700s or any time before then. It doesn't come along till the late 1800s, early 1900s, when psychologists start exploring mythology. So I, I think it's well worth saying, we're going to explore this today, Tori, but certainly we're just the, the latest in a, a group of modern thinkers to explore this idea uh, around Loki. And it's a fairly new idea about this character that's been around a long, long time. Yeah, we're part of a lineage <laughs> that's exploring <laughs> Loki. And I'm happy to be a part of it. <laughs> well, and... and I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm also happy that we don't have to take ourselves completely seriously all the time. On this podcast, we always present a skeleton from our own closet as part of the skeleton key tradition here. And Tori, I am going to bring out a skeleton from 
the vast collection of skeletons I have around hairstyles that I have Ooh. had throughout the years. Yeah. I'm interested. Well, <laughs> even though skeletons aren't known for having hairstyles, they go with that bald look. Skeletons in my closet that are around hairstyles are many. I, I remember when my family first decided I was old enough to have any sense of hairstyle at all. And besides just a bowl cut where they'd put a bowl on your head and just cut the hair that came out from under the bowl. But after that, my family decided, you know, John should join the ranks of, of young white men that part their hair. And this is, you know, a long-standing European tradition here of parting, you know, uh, y- your hair as a child. I, I had my what hair parted. Yeah. Can I can I ask what parting your hair means? <laughs> like, what yeah. do you mean by that? <laughs> so, parting your hair is you know where you take a a, a comb and and choose a random place on your head and and say, all right, there's going to be a straight line here, and all the hair to the left of this line will go in this direction, and all the hair to the right of this line will go in this direction. So that was that was now. Tori, you got to know, my hair grows straight out of my head, and it's really fine. And parting my hair was no easy task, and it had to be accomplished through a great amount of hairspray. And I'm still very sorry about the personal damage I did to the ozone layer throughout my childhood with a massive amount of hairspray uh, in order to try and part my hair on the side. But... Where am I going with this uh, skeleton from my closet? I'm going to what I like to refer to as the Hiddleston mullet. Because after I had this parted hair, when I decided, you know what? Parting your hair is for dorks, and I'm too cool for this. So in my preteen years, I decided uh, that um, I would adopt this new hairstyle when I was around 11 years old that maybe I was 12, but around this time, I I decided I would endorse this hairstyle that was very popular at the time called the spike. And this is where young white guys like myself would just push their hair up to the heavens and just have this massive free flow of letting your hair just stand straight up on end and and spiked up to the skies. This also, by the way, took a massive amount of hairspray in order to accomplish. But in the Little East Texas town I lived in, not only did we have the spike, but we also would grow our hair out long in the back only. So we'd keep it short on the sides, spiked on the top, long in the back, and this, of course, was a mullet. It was a yeah, mullet. That's, the, that's it's, definitely a mullet. It, yeah, it's you know, it goes by many names. The uh, the the ape drape, lots of different names for the mullet. But if you look at Tom Hiddleston's hairstyle in Loki, there's kind of a like neo mullet going there. It's much it's more modern. Yeah, it's mullet esque. And I think what I was trying to do back in my preteen years, was accomplished the Hiddleston mullet, although, like many things in my life, I grandly failed at trying to do so. So that's the skeleton from my uh, closet today. You were ahead of your time, is what you're saying. Well, I I don't know if I'd go that far. (laughs) I was was way ahead of my time when it came to (laughs) hairstyles. Uh, Time still has not caught up with my hair, so sorry to report. One day, we'll get there. We'll meet you there. 
one day. <laughs> How about you, Tori? What, uh, what, what did you bring for us today? My skeleton key is about a naive but earnest young Tori mm. who, when she first heard about a, not want to say evil deity, but mm. a deity who is not great, mm. aka the Christian devil. Mm-hmm. I, my mom tried to explain the devil to me when I was seven Mm -hmm. and she's, (laughs) she was saying that he was, he was down there. He was underground. (laughs) Right. Right. And so in my young seven-year-old head, I thought she meant like directly underground. Oh. And so (laughs) she was very confused for like a year. I would just march around my backyard stomping on the grass <laughs> and saying, I hate you, devil. I hate you. And it finally reached a peak when in, in our on our hardwood floors, she saw me spit on the floor and stomp because I thought that I was fighting the devil. And that's when I first had to learn wow. what metaphorical meant. Wow. Yeah. Tori, you were fighting devils from a young age, <laughs> yeah. and I love it. I love it. I don't know how much it helped. I you probably know, scared some like groundhogs off. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the there devil. were probably uh, old people that looked in your backyard and saw you doing battle with the devil that said, right on, Tori, good for you, battling evil. I love it. I don't know if that's a reaction, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were fighting the good fight, Tori. And I was trying. Yeah. Speaking of fighting the good fight, we have a guest today that continues to fight the good fight in culture of educating people about this trickster archetype that we've mentioned. And Dr. Scott Neumeister is quite the scholar when it comes to understanding the trickster archetype, but specifically Scott's thoughts about Loki blew my mind. I'm super excited to to share them, Tori. What can we say about Scott before bringing I mean, him onto the show? I just feel like he's just part of us now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's we just love part of the family. He's a hundred percent one of us in terms of loving this intersection of history, yeah. myth, and pop culture. Uh, I'm so excited for people to hear this. I am too. Dr. Scott Neumeister is a literary scholar and author from Tampa, Florida, where he earned his PhD in English from the University of South Florida in 2018. His specialization in multi-ethnic American literature and mythology comes after careers as an IT systems engineer and a teacher of English and myth at a middle school and at a college. And Scott has done so many fascinating things. I am so excited to welcome to Skeleton Keys our friend, Dr. Scott Neumeister. Scott Neumeister, here you are. Yes. On Skeleton Keys, we have been awaiting your arrival. It is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's amazing to be here. <laughs> wow. After two seasons of listening, to now be a part of the show is just, uh, it's a dream, honestly. Uh Wow, you are so kind. Well, Scott, um, let, let's begin by by telling everybody a bit about who you are and how you came to the work of myth, which has become a, a, a significant part of your life in many ways. Well, it's been a roundabout journey. 
honestly. I my I started my love of myth in middle school. I actually the the curriculum of my private little middle school was uh, included mythology. And, you know, it started with, you know, kind of your basic origin myths of uh, the Titans and such like that. And then in uh, seventh grade, we read the Iliad and the Odyssey in the original. <laughs> and in fact, the translation that we read was, uh, I mean, it had thee and thy and thou. So it was very kind of formalistic sounding. But uh, that, dis despite that barrier, I just fell in love with the Greek myths. It just really was something that uh, spoke in a, in a deep way to me. Um, and I went on to uh, the language that was taught at that middle school was Latin, the, the foreign language. So that was an interesting uh, kind <laughs> of uh, you know, not normal thing to have done. But when I got into high school, I continued in Latin. And of course, one of the things that you would read if you're reading, you know, at a higher level in Latin is Ovid's Metamorphoses. So, I mean, myth kind of, you know, it just followed me all along uh, through that time. And I took a myth class in my undergrad time, but I, you know, I ended up majoring in economics, uh, not really anything even close to mythology, but it remained a love of mine. Yeah. And, you know, Scott, as, as you journeyed to professional life and in the adult life, you know, did, did myth uh, come, come back to you in, in different times and ways? How, how did that happen? Well, it was interesting because really the, the kind of pivotal moment for me with, with myth really was I had gone into IT. I was working as a computer systems analyst. And, you know, there are lots of geeks, let's say, that hang out in, in that uh, particular career. And I just happened to walk into a co-worker's office one day uh, during lunchtime. And most people in that industry are very, very hard workers. They don't even really go out to lunch. They're always at their computer. And she was eating lunch at her computer, but reading a book at the same time. And so I walked into her office and I said, oh, what's that book? And she said, oh, it's called the hero with a thousand faces. <laughs> and I said, I've never heard of that. Who's, who's the author? Joseph Campbell. <laughs> and again, this was, this was the moment that I, that, you know, that was my call to adventure, honestly, if we're going to put it in those terms. I said, when you're done with it, may I borrow it? And she said, yes. So that's when, that's when it all started. That's when I wow. really, you know, it went from a resonance that I felt with it in those younger years to, a I really dove below the surface of it and said, this is, there's something more to myth than just entertainment or something beyond just liking it as, as a story that somehow resonates with me, but seems distant. You know, speaking of stories, uh, for me, I, I, I don't know how this was for you, when I was getting into myth and also in middle school, um, I always re like connected with the archetypes of certain archetypes that were out there. I typically like the huntresses. Um, is there a particular archetype that you have a certain affection for? Well, it's interesting. As I've gone back, and I am kind of right now working on what I might call a mythic memoir, and that is to write the stories of my life through the lens of myth and the lens of really the lens of archetype as well. And so even though, even though I didn't realize it at the time, my love of the flying stories was always, was always a thing for me, whether it was Hermes 
as as uh, as one of the tricksters that we like to talk about. Whether it was um, a phaethon, you know, which was of course a tragedy, but you know the fact that he was like, I want to fly that sun chariot. I, that was just uh, I'm like, yeah, you go. <laughs> also, Bellerophon riding Pegasus, you know, so always with the flying. I, those were those were the archetypes that that really uh, I I enjoyed and appreciated. So that was that's just the 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 archetype of the freedom that that would give you to be able to fly wherever you wanted to go, and especially Hermes because he could go from Olympus, you know, to Earth to the underworld. He had complete range of of all three of those, which was I mean the ultimate freedom I think, and you know you might consider at that time. Well, Scott, you you just brought up uh, an archetype that I know is near and dear to you, and that's the the archetype of the trickster, which you know connects us very very much to to our topic for today and the the particular uh, character from myth that we are discussing, and that's Loki. And I feel like. Um, I should just open the gate here and just <laughs> let you go talking about this because I know you have a deep affinity for this archetype of the trickster, but for Loki in particular. So what what uh, what's going on with Loki? Well, you know the the trickster has been a revelation to me because even though like like I said, Tori, the my initial draw to Hermes was his the freedom that he had and that flying and and being able to go. Uh, wherever you wanted, really only within, I'd say, the last five years have I really dived into the trickster archetype and what that meant, you know, for Hermes. This idea of him being, you know, they actually had a god in the Greek mythos of lying. Like, how is that a thing? That's not something that Westerners really relate to. To be honest, it's not something that nowadays we really kind of, you, you kind of think of whatever the quality or the attribute of the God is either neutral or positive. You know, there's not a kind of a, a shadow around it as far as the value of it or the ethics of what they do. And so to say, now, what was it about, what is it about lying and trickery that makes this kind of a fundamental archetypal attribute for this God? So that really, when I first started diving into uh, the trickster archetype. I was like, this is th- there's something going on here that needs to be explored. If the Greeks felt it was important, then maybe I should look into it too. <laughs> and it really kind of boils down to this understanding of what is it in life that is tricky? What is it in life that's lying? What is it in life that's, you know, this is far beyond our interpersonal connection of whether I'm telling the truth or whether I'm lying. It's what is it in life? Like for this is a basic example. When I uh, wake up in the morning, I look out, I see the sun rising. Well, that's a trick. (laughs) That is an absolute lie. The sun is not rising at all. The earth is rotating. Nature loves trickery. Nature is full of trickery. There's lots going on that is in the natural, beyond ethics, beyond any kind of values, beyond any human system. Tricks are happening all the time. So we are, we as creatures of the earth are a part of the system that is full of tricks, no matter what, even if we never had a word to say, we are, it's a full of trickery. So that, as I started going deeper and deeper, these realizations about what are the tricks of life? What is the, you know, and honestly, even life itself, the fact that we get so used to living and then we suddenly are dying, (laughs) that's a cruel trick. So there's so much 
when you view it in those much broader terms versus am I telling the truth or am I telling a lie, that 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 trick that trickery and and tricksterism is just a part of living in this plane. And so that the depth of that exploration really got me to embrace the trickster as an archetype. But now Loki, <laughs> that's a whole, he's a whole other thing. Because again, my entry into myth was Greek mythology. When I slowly started to, and I'll give Marvel credit, it really was Marvel, the fact that they chose to have Thor and to have Loki and to have these kind of uh, Norse uh, characters in pop culture. I mean, I know that, you know, that that's the second uh, limb of, of skeleton keys is, you know, you've got mythology and you've got pop culture uh, and, and it, with a historical underpinning, right? This, the fact that pop culture is embracing a trickster. Now, what is that saying? This, again, all these questions just started really kind of spurring my imagination, spurring my depth of uh, inquiry. I think there's something I think you are right on with it. Like there's trickery in, in everything. It's just like a, the, in the human experience, there's trickery. And I think that is a reason why Loki is so beloved. Because I, from what I understand, he was not supposed to have be in the MCU as long as he has been, but he's just been this fan favorite. So that's why we love him so much. But I think a lot of it is because of that trickery. Because we understand inherently that some things in life aren't fair. Some things in life are not easily packaged into good or evil. There's this in-between, that gray area that he inhabits so beautifully. I just think that's an important thing that you were saying about that for people to recognize. Where has your interest in Loki come from, John? You know, for me... um there's something about the 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 name Loki that uh, it's fun to say. It, it, it has a, uh, a a bit of a, a ring to it. I've always because the the execution of Loki, uh, he's usually been wearing green, even from the the Marvel comics of of way back. I've, I've been drawn to green. You know, there's something uh, about that. I've long been fascinated by the the Green Man archetype. You know, that comes from many uh, different ancient European mythologies. Uh, so that drew me in. But I think a lot of what drew me to Loki is exactly what Tori uh, brought up. And that's, he exists in this liminal space between uh, being helpful and being unhelpful, being you know, in the simplest terms, being good and being evil. Because Loki, you know, the trickster is not concerned with matters of ethics in the way that we in a, a Western society are. You know, I've, I've long been fascinated by tricksters from First Nations uh, mythology and in Native American, you know, mythologies, because uh, whether it's the coyote or the raven or, or who, whatever character is embodying the trickster, that character is often very unconcerned with what we might feel like is ethically important in the story. They serve a role, they're, they're focused on that. And sometimes that role is disruption. And I have always been drawn to rebels and, and disruption. So, you know, these, these things, as I dive deeper into the character of Loki, they, they've made me curious about him. But Tori, what about you? What, what made you curious about Loki? You know, it was, it was 
I've always liked Loki, but the series has really opened me up to him in a different way. It's interesting to me, throughout the MCU, he has always said, I'm a god. He reminds people constantly, but I'm a god. When in actuality, I think his arc is probably the most human out of any of the heroes in it, especially in this in this last iteration for him. So I think that's what's really interesting. There's a sense of of understanding his pride and knowing that we all have pride in defining ourselves of what we think we are, and then realizing at the at the bottom of it, we're all human. So I think there's a, a sense of like recognizing that in him that really resonates with me. Also, I too like green. Green is my favorite color. So that might have something yes. to do with it. And I have black hair. So. <laughs> well, I don't think any discussion of uh, the MCU and, and the series could, for me, go by without talking about Tom Hiddleston. Well, that's really what drew me to, uh, Come to, on. to Loki, right? <laughs> I love that man. Yes. I want the best for him. Uh, me yes. too. Me too. I love that man too. And I'm, you know... I'm a I'm a straight man with a partner, but Tom Hiddleston sometimes makes me question that. Um, so it's fair. That's yeah. fair. I have a partner, but like he could get it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this this idea of you know that attractive quality, honestly, that's part of you know that is part of the trickster. You know their mo is is how do they pull you in? How are you? How are you even believing them in the first place? And so that really, he as as an actor just embodies that so well. And he attracts in a way that's not through a physicality, although we did get a nice uh, kind of, uh, you know, classic uh, chest, <laughs> chest shot in the, during the series, you know, naked, naked chest shot. But he really, he, you know, he, some people might not even know that he auditioned for Thor. I mean, the, the part of Thor. Yeah. And it's just so funny to watch that because, you know, he, it just didn't, it didn't go. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't really work. And, you know, especially viewing it post him being Loki, you look back at that and you say, oh, no, yeah. that would never have been a, been a good choice. <laughs> never have been a good choice. So it really, I just, I, I think that really has, I mean, as, as popular as the, the comic version of Loki has been, you know, with his own spinoffs and things like that, the, in the MCU with him as the, as the um, as the actor doing it, unbelievable, just unbelievable. He has such love for the character. You can tell that he loves this character and he loves exploring it. And I always think too, we were talking about his his ability to attract. I think a lot of times Loki and the fandom around Loki kind of gets trivialized as oh, just women like him. Mm-hmm. Which let's we can't get started about the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> no. But I think instead of being like, oh, just dismissive, women like him, it's under it's exploring why is he so attractive to everyone? Like exploring what about him? And I think, you know, it's the character, it's Tom Hiddleston, it's all of that. But what about that is attractive? There's something like there's a there's a visceral, sensual attraction to Loki and that character and the actor that portrays him that I really think is interesting. There's something going on there too, where Loki gives permission to be something that sometimes society doesn't uh, always uh, approve of. And I think that maybe something just to, to build on what you were saying there, Tori, I think there's something 
very attractive about Loki to men right now that, you know, there's, there's rightfully so men are under the microscope uh, right now in culture. Rightfully so. This is a very earned position that men have place themselves in. Um, But I also think there's an attraction to Loki because there's a reminder there that you can still be everything you are, you know, without putting a lot of moral judgments around it. And there's a permission there, you know, as well. And maybe that's not just specific to men. I don't know. But I I know as a man, there's something that, that makes me feel like Loki mirrors a part of me that is not always smiled upon as deeply in society. I I don't know. Is that just me? It's not just you. (laughs) It's me too. Um, I think it's one of those things where like, I think it is. He allows you the freedom to be like, sometimes I'm not great and that's okay. Or sometimes I'm fluid in certain things. I don't have to remain stagnant. Because I think that's a really big part of who Loki is. Loki is constantly moving, constantly evolving, constantly creating stories. As we Mobius said, we know you like to talk. <laughs> and I think there's something really interesting about that. It's like he understands how intelligent he is. He understands his abilities. And he's not trying to use those in the parameters of, of what society deems as acceptable. And I think that's super attractive. Like yeah. for me, like – Sometimes you like a bad boy, <laughs> you know. Yep, yep. I, I, Even if he's the Norse god of mischief. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's what you bring up. What y'all both bring up is interesting too, because without going into too much detail, I mean, you can see uh, in society, you know, within the past year and a half, two years with the pandemic and everything like that, this uh, focus on the what is the balance between restriction and freedom mm. right mm. and remember how i said at the very beginning what was what is you know you asked me tori what is was the archetype or what you drew me in i said well it's this freedom right we all kind of have this innate desire for freedom and yet at the same time we also have an innate desire for structure yeah and where that line is drawn is always contested always contested it doesn't take a pandemic to know this, but the pandemic brought it out in a way that's so just in your face. Well, and that's what I think people love about Loki is he is a a, a character devoted to exploring that line yes. between structure and freedom, yes. between order and chaos. That is That is a slippery slope for us as human beings, but... To watch Loki navigate that, it brings us uh, understanding about ourselves and how we can can navigate that. And I think this also, I'd be curious to hear what the two of you think. You know, Loki in the, the MCU, before there was a television show or a streaming series about this, he really just embodied one aspect of the archetype. I mean, there just wasn't a lot of time to unpack all these layers. But when we brought him into this streaming series... Suddenly, Loki takes on all these new layers where we see Loki struggle with that line between order and chaos, freedom and structure. And I think in many ways, the Loki of the streaming series on Disney Plus is 
far more a relatable Loki to me that I get more out of where the, the Loki of the, the films was almost like a fantasy Loki for me. Like it, I wanted to be that trickster, but it was just one fantasy, you know, scenario that I, I would step into in my mind with that Loki. Yes. Tori, what do you think? I definitely agree. I, this is gonna gonna sound so typical of me because of my being a fan of wrestling. The Loki in the MCU was kind of like a wrestling persona, and then the Loki in the streaming series is who he really is. And so I think that's what was really interesting to me is watching. Like I said, the series really made me like him, and maybe because it is more relatable, and he's not just the the trickster villain that they had kind of made him out to be. So I completely agree with you what about what do you think scott i i feel the exact same way there's so many great key lines in the series that that happen you know toward the beginning and one of them is the mobius line what makes a loki a loki i mean it just opens the door up for that exploration yeah it just lays it right out there yeah and i love that that kind of sets the tone for the series of you know of his own introspection right and his own revealing of, well, did you really, you know, this whole kind of thing you went through in the movies of, oh, you want power and you want to be a king and all this. Is that really who you are? Is that really what Loki is about? And so to lay that all out there and to have that unfold. And then, of course, I'm assuming that some spoilers here are okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the This whole idea of self-love, Yeah. you know, and and, and trusting yourself. Right, it's one thing to trust others in a, in a tricky world, <laughs> but what about trusting yourself? And then the that the you know the externalization of himself via this idea of you know parallel universes and such, and then even beyond that, just to have this idea of the you know this TVA mm. as this you know what what happens when the the trickster meets the ultimate in structure, yeah. And the way the the aesthetics of the TVA are 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 designed to be that kind of classic authoritarian, we're, we're, you know, we, we we are the structure, and you will bow down. Yeah, I mean, it, it could honestly could not have been been done better. Can we give a shout out to whoever was like the set designer and oh. the cinematographer? Oof. Because I don't know if you guys notice when they're in the TVA, it feels like the ceilings are low. Yeah, like it, it is. feels yeah. claustrophobic, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. I'm like. Ugh. You guys did it. So good. Marvel yes. did it again. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the TVA for a second because there's, I think, something really interesting mythologically happening with the TVA. And to me, anytime you start playing with the idea of time, there is a lot happening on a myth level. And let, allow me to unpack that Please. for a second. We, we certainly uh, have long associated time with these father figures, father time, right? And so there's something about that sort of structure we're talking about and about time that mythologically has, and we can go to Kronos, we can go to, you know, uh, a number of different mythological figures connected to time and all of them somehow come back to this father archetype. So I would uh, throw out there for your consideration, Tori and Scott, maybe 
What's happening in Loki is actually a story about a man trying to reconcile with who his father is. Yo, (laughs) you just blew my mind. Because now I'm going back through the series and being Uh like, how many times, like how he was resident, like dealing with, you know, being a frost giant and dealing with losing Odin. And oh my gosh, I think you're onto something with that for sure. Yeah. It's certainly a subtext, if, if nothing else, is is dealing with the father and certainly, you know, Odin with with the one eye and, you know, what, what did Odin give up that eye for to be able to see, you know, everything. everything. And so there's something about my father's always watching me. I'm, I'm always under the watchful eye of my father. Maybe if there were multiple timelines, my father couldn't see everything. But the father in Loki, this TV streaming series, uh, this TVA, they, what do they do? They keep all the timelines in balance and, and they police anything that goes outside of that. So in a sense, I think it's dealing with this psychological idea of being under this father's watchful eye and us um, pushing back, you know, against that, whether it be through trying to escape, you know, different timelines. I, I, I love in the series that Loki is very clear about wanting a meeting with the TVA. He, he's very clear. I want this face to face. And there's the TVA, of course, is elusive. You know, they're, they're not. And of course, at the end of the series, we, we find out much more about why, you know, that, yes. that is. But I, I think that even all of that fits into this idea of the TVA being this father patriarchal, you know, idea that is being explored. And it's no coincidence, or it is, I should say, it's great synchronicity, then that the me he falls in love with is the feminine. Yes. Mm, yep. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Tori, you want to take a bite out of that first? Oh, that's all you, Scott. <laughs> There's a lot happening there. Yeah, it really, um, it is... Yes, thank you for bringing up Kronos. Yeah, because um, you know, uh, Tori, the question you asked earlier about you know what was your favorite, you know, what was your archetype, what was your favorite, you know, character, the kind of anti freedom is Kronos. Yeah, I mean, he really is in in Greek myth, and honestly, in this uh, um, this uh, inchoate uh, mythic memoir. <laughs> You know, there there have been a lot of Cronuses in my life, mm. starting with my own father, yeah. right? Yeah. The the school that I was telling you about that I went to was a, uh, uh, a parochial school, so very super strict, kind of in the British model. Mm. So kind of like uh, you know Hogwarts, uh, you know, under uh, Professor Umbridge on steroids, <laughs> kind of a thing. You know, so I mean, um, and then going into um, IT, that industry can be very. Uh, 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 Saturnine, let's call it, yeah. rather than Cronian. I like Saturnine yeah, better. Like very that. kind of just <laughs> super structured, very, I mean, that's the nature of code. Yeah. You know, it is structured. If you don't structure it right, it collapses. So, you know, there's this need for it, but then it becomes like a fetish. Yeah. And then the, and then of course, then the company is also kind of in a, in a has structure and so on. So, so my kind of um, nemesis being a, being a Hermes guy, if you will, has been Saturn yeah. or Cronus. You know, but again, at that depth level, time again is this unstoppable, unrelenting measuring force that is anti-freedom. 
Yeah. You know, and, and then, you know, but then to code it as masculine, yeah. right? And then to, I mean, yeah, absolutely buy into that, that interpretation, John. And, uh, and it really, because it is time, time is this, it feels like to us, this inexorable, unstoppable force that is always going to win. Yeah. And you know, I, and, I, that, and that, and then men like that. <laughs> they, 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 they want a piece of that, right? That, me too. <laughs> I, well, it's, it's interesting when you were bringing up Sylvie as the feminine, which she's obviously represents, is that I don't want to go into like too many spoilers because the last episode is one big spoiler. But basically, <laughs> she goes in to meet the puppeteer and immediately has no trust in them. And I think it was interesting that. Can we talk spoilers on here? Let's do spoilers. <laughs> Let's do By spoilers. the way, okay. if you haven't seen the last episode, hit pause on the podcast right now and then come back after you've we'll seen it. We'll wait. We'll wait. We'll, <laughs> Go we'll for be it, right Tor. here, okay? Um, but when they meet the man who's to be Kang the Conqueror in as a mortis as himself, and they realize this is the man behind time, Sylvie immediately distrusts him. She's like, I don't care what he has to say. We're ending this. Loki, however, is like, okay, this guy basically said, this will split into different timelines. The enemy you know is better than the enemy you don't know. Maybe this is a bet. We should listen to this person. I thought that was really interesting because even the way Jonathan Majors portrayed himself was kind of like a weathered father hmm. of like, I've been doing this for a long time. Like yeah. I'm just like his, his body language down to his sandals, which like I've seen my dad wear at a cookout. Yeah. Like <laughs> it was very much like, oh, I'm, I, I'm that old father who's in control of this, but the other option is chaos. Do you want my structure or do you want this freedom? And I think that was, Interesting that Sylvie was like, nope, I'm taking the freedom. I don't care what happens. And Loki was the one being the masculine who was like, maybe the structure is needed. Yeah. Oof. That, now you just blew my mind, Tori. (laughs) (laughs) uh, We're blowing minds today. uh, We are. We are. Ooh, that's so, so good. Yeah, Scott, what what is it about this relationship between the trickster, time, and the feminine? That is a mix there that I feel like is worthy of like 20 podcasts, but just (laughs) any initial, you know, impressions or thoughts of that. Well, I mean, again, the, if I can be essentialist about it, I mean, I really think that there's this, this mashing together of the masculine and control. Yeah. I really, I mean, that is just that, I think that's pretty, pretty established. Yeah. And to have, to have that idea of, if we're going to mess with, if we're able to mess with time and we're able to break out of that, the structure that it implies, is that an essentially feminine quality or attribute or aspiration, mm. you know? And I think that's, that's, that's too deep for me in this yeah. moment, honestly. But I, I, I vibe with what you both yeah. are saying. I really, I really feel like that, that that's in the mix, definitely with the show. But it's bu- it's really bubbling underneath the surface. Yeah. So the fact that you pulled that up above, 
Yeah. That really, that's very, that that's really intuitive of you. Well, well, the one thing I, I, that comes to mind for me as we talk about it is this concept of somehow capturing time, right? Uh, of whether it be on a watch or a clock or somehow marking time on calendars and day timers and all. That this this idea is very masculine in many ways. I feel like because what we're really doing there is we're we're trying to. Uh, you know, Freud would say we're trying to stave off death, basically. Uh, in trying to capture time, we're trying to stave off death. The way that the feminine relates to time is honestly through the movement of the moon, right? The movement of the moon, whether, you know, that, that plays out through menstrual cycles, that plays out through uh, a number of different, the bringing life into the earth. You know, this is babies, you know, about nine months of, of gestation inside a human, but it's not like it, it's a exactly nine months. It's like, well, it's it's around nine months. For some, it's this. For some, it's that. You know, and that is very, you know, feminine to break outside of that capturing of time and that mar- demarcation of time. The feminine is less concerned with that because, again, the movements of the moon and the way that at the risk of mansplaining here, and Tori, please just jump in and push me off the mic. Um, but but honestly, this is there's some connection to, to womanhood and the movement outside of the demarcation of time. Please speak to that, Tori. I think you're completely right. Because when you were saying of the masculine viewing time as a way of putting off death. I think the cycles of the feminine are inherently one of death and rebirth Mm. from the moon, from our menstrual cycles. We can just inherently understand that sometimes something has to die for something better to be reborn Mm. or something worse to be reborn. We just understand inherently the cycles. (laughs) So I think you're completely on, on it with that. I like the way you said it a lot better than the way I said it, though. That was really, that was really good. Oof, powerful. Can I bring up a myth? Please, please. <laughs> is that is that allowed? Not on skeleton. Right, game. that would, be, that would be totally inappropriate. <laughs> I'm thinking of Sisyphus. Sisyphus. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, he he gets his punishment. I mean, everyone knows his, or many people, most people, when you hear the name, you think of the punishment. Yeah. But he got it by cheating death. Yeah. A couple times. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. He, you know, so, and again, this idea of, you know, when I realized that, oh, you know, you who don't want, you know, death is the ultimate change, right? And now you're trying to hold off change. And your punishment for trying to hold off change is... To never have change, yeah. which is the, the rolling of the stone, right? Yeah. That, but but that even itself is cyclic, yeah. right? You think yeah. of that as a cycle, right? You go up, you go down. It's like oh, we know the, you know how that's how that's going to work out. But that, yes, yeah, Sisyphus. He was maybe one of the first uh, human tricksters. Yeah. You know, I, in in Greek in Greek myth, I'll see your Sisyphus <laughs> and raise you Anansi, uh, because <laughs> Anansi, especially you know in in West African traditions, as he takes the form of a spider, we think about a spider weaving a web. 
And I don't know if there's any more common uh, metaphor for the time, but weaving the web mm-hmm. of time and looking at time as this this spider web that weaves out from the center and expands. Even our understandings of, of the space-time continuum and the way that you know time um, expands in space in the universe, it in some ways mirrors this spider web. So. Anansi, in my humble estimation, brings a different sort of disruption to time through being this archetypal character that is weaving the web, but never getting caught Mm. in the web. Mm. You know, a, a spider weaves this web, but they have this magical seeming ability to never get caught. In, in the web itself. And, and that is that is Anansi the trickster. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he never gets caught in his own web. Yes. And I love that. Yes. I love that. And there's isn't there a line in the in the streaming series where Loki says, I won't let you know, this was uh, prior to him understand, you know, who, who the uh, the timekeepers were that really they're <laughs> who's behind the timekeepers. But, you know, he was saying that I won't let these lizard Yes. Guys, tell the end of my story. Yes. Yes. Right? He doesn't want to be, get caught in his in that web. That's right. Right? That's I'm right. above the web. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. the spider. I'm the spider. I'm the spider. Yes. So, <laughs> so that ties directly into yeah. what you just said. Well, and as long as we're talking about uh, animals and Loki, we would be remiss if we did not talk about alligator Loki. <laughs> yes. Uh, because star allig- of the show. Star of the show, right? <laughs> Yes. Alligator Loki. What is happening with Alligator Loki? Why is there an Alligator Loki? Maybe it needs its own podcast to to just dive deep into Alligator Loki. But honestly, what is going on with Alligator Loki? Any Anybody got thoughts? I'm passing to Tori. <laughs> I, I honestly don't. I, I don't know as much about alligators. So I can't really like say. I think it's weird because I think alligators are seen as these predators. Yeah. But how everyone viewed alligator Loki was the opposite of that. It was very like, oh my God, this sweet little alligator Loki. When in actuality, he's a predator. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think maybe that's why it's, it's realizing, oh, that's kind of the same affection I have for Loki in general and the trickster archetype. Of like understanding, I know this animal's dangerous, but look at him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's so charming. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe that's something there. I don't know. Maybe that is. Do do we know if it's alligator Loki or crocodile, crocodile right? Loki? See, if you say croc, I would think of Egyptian mythology. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And but, you know, I also think of crocodile tears mm, being like a, a trickster yes. quality. Ooh. Yes. You know, the crocodile that tears. That makes is, more sense. It does in yeah. many ways because you know the croc lying just uh, under the surface of the water and just the eyes up above, and they play dead. And you know, I I, I wonder. If it's actually crocodile Loki as opposed to alligator Loki, yeah. if somebody knows the answer, would you jump on you know Twitter or one of our social media accounts and and tell us is it crocodile Loki or alligator Loki? Solve the mystery for us. I know a skeleton keys listener has the answer to this. I'm confident. <laughs> you guys know. I don't know the difference between alligators and crocodiles, but someone out there does. Being from Florida myself. I think I mean there's a, a the nose is definitely a, a different shape. I'm I'm leaning alligator. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm okay. leaning it. But but I mean again, 
Um, there is, you know, it's kind of like what's interesting in Crow and Raven, yeah. right? So, yeah. you know, yeah. sometimes yes yeah. and sometimes, you know, but but yes, absolutely. The qualities y'all are talking about, absolutely, you know, they they have that. Yes, they are very tricky. In fact, you know, speaking of being in Florida, uh, it's uh, more often than you would like to think there's stories of people that are walking their dogs yeah. or, or whatever just right next to the wall and, the, and they, just, they just come right out and just grab. They, they, you know, they, they, you know, 99% of their, of their waking lives are move very, very slowly. They're conserving energy. And then in that one moment when they're feeding, it's all on. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's, just, it's just an interesting way they, they operate. So I w- recently took a trip to the Everglades mm. and uh, did an airboat tour. Mm. Of it, and the, and our guide was just incredible knowledge, as you can imagine, he should have <laughs> on on gators, and and said that they sometimes will, if they get a really good meal, they can last for a year. Wow, wow! So you know, definitely a, an interesting creature. Well, in, in regardless of alligator or crocodile, I always think this is a mini dinosaur. Yes. It, it always has that look, you know, and feel of a mini dinosaur, yes. and you know, there, there's. Oh, what do you got, Scott? They've beaten time. They've beaten time. Yes, yes they have. They have. Yes. They've it, beaten it, they, time. They are, you know, you think of like living dinosaurs. So, I mean, yeah. yes, they are. That's a symbol of having kind of conquered time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Not only have they beaten time, this idea of conserving energy and, and sort of maintaining their their space, not moving around a lot. Um, I, I think about Loki in this series being trapped in you know this this timeline where he's being imprisoned you know and uh the the first episode is really just him trying to get out of that you know they tricksters don't like being pinned down they don't like being trapped that in some ways goes back to this idea though of uh, of of being uh manipulated by father time they don't like being pinned down by time. So the next time, you know, you're you're late to something, you can just say, hey, look, uh, I embody the trickster archetype. This is who I am. <laughs> you wear the super cool Loki shirt and you're like, this is who, who I'm out. Right? Exactly. This is what I'm about. Exactly. Deal with it. Like, sorry. Don't hate. Deal with it. Don't hate. Don't hate. But you <laughs> bringing up. That's right. John, you bringing up the uh, tricksters don't like to be pinned down. Um, that also makes me think of uh, being that I brought it up earlier, I think of Odysseus yeah. on his way home. You know, in the Trojan War, he's you know he's kind of really the guy that ends it, right? Yeah. So he you know he's the, the the hero in that way. But that journey home is all about being trapped. Yeah, in all these various you know all along the way, he's trapped by the Cyclops, he's trapped by Cersei, he's trapped by Calypso. So all of these traps, yeah. and then when he finally arrives home. He's trapped in that he can't just walk in and say, I'm back, honey, <laughs> and, and just sit, and sit on the throne and everything's fine. He's trapped by these suitors and yeah. having to be the trickster to defeat them. So, yes. Yeah, so, you know, now that provides a lot of kind of storyline and entertainment <laughs> to, yeah. to them to figure it out. But it, it, but that that that's, I mean, you know, the show writers definitely knew what they were doing yeah. when they said, "What? Where, where is the environment that we can really see this this character shine, yeah. tr- a trickster shine? And it's a place where they're trapped. Yeah. You know, whereas in the, you know, the movies prior, he very much is this kind of outside operator and he's very, he has a lot of, of, of you know, a lot of freedom. I don't know if they'll be able to hear it on the podcast, but there is a little green trickster that is, keeps chirping here in the background, there's a cricket 
Uh, that, I heard it, it. Yeah, that has somehow made it into my office uh, where we're recording here. And uh, I mean, what more of a trickster thing? And that's never happened to us here on Skeleton Key. Wasn't there a spider when we talked about the other? Yes, Anansi. Anansi? Yes, I remember the trickster that. is following you. Yes. Oh wow! Yes. Wow! Yes. I, I, I don't even know how we managed to do that. The trickster does follow us. And I don't know if you know this, Tori, but uh, if if I can say so, John uh, recently had some problems with some raccoons. Yes, I did. And if did there you? is, and if there is another arc animal archetype for tricksters, raccoons really are they. They've got their little masks, of course, for right? Like sure. like the bandits, and just the way they operate, they're very tricky, very stealthy, very you know into uh you know uh coming in and out without you even knowing they're there yeah so i had to have i had to have a uh a team of black panthers come in they removed seven raccoons from underneath my house that's an important number by the way yeah exactly so <laughs> i i was surrounded by trickster energy yes, yes. but i'm also it's really following you it is yes. following me i'm really glad though to have those raccoons uh removed from yes. they've been released out into the wild somewhere here in the los angeles area or at least that's what they told me i hope that's true but yes uh, the trickster energy follows us around and you know with this uh cricket playing for us. Uh, I, I don't know that we can top this in any way. So I, I feel like uh, we, we should uh, begin to wrap this up. Scott, you not only think about the trickster, you you speak about the trickster. And uh, there, there's, there's a, a talk that I know people can go listen to you talk about the trickster. Could you tell us about that? And uh, how can people check that out? Yes, thank you. On YouTube, I recently did a TEDx talk for TEDx Heritage Green, and I was exploring the connection between Hermes as a trickster and a liar and language. And, you know, I, again, the, the brief story behind that being that um, when I found out not only that Hermes is the god of language and trickery, and also the Yoruban god, Elegua, is also a God who embodies both of those qualities. I said, what is it about those two things that goes together? Why would you have a God who's the, a God who tricks people also be the God of talking and communicating? So that led me to a deep exploration that you can watch on YouTube, yeah. TEDx Heritage Green. Go check that out for sure. And Scott, uh, if people are wanting to connect with you and hear more uh, about you and your work, uh, where can people find you? Yes, I'm on Twitter at uh, Mythic Path is my handle. Ooh, Mythic Path. What a good, what a good Such Twitter a good handle, name. right? <laughs> well, hopefully so appropriate good. for Every the show. Every time I see it, I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, it's been a real delight to have you as our guest on Skeleton Keys. And uh, thank you for enlightening us uh, ab about Loki and the trickster archetype. And I am very excited to see what you do in your, your work in the future and how you will um, not combat the trickster, but dance with the trickster. Yes. yes. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Tori. Again, thank you to Scott for mm. coming out. And talking with us. I just feel like we got into so many different things. I feel like we could have talked with Scott for hours, literally. 
we can for sure say this will be the first appearance of Scott Neumeister on the show. But Dr. Scott Neumeister, you will be coming back to join us and we can't wait to have you. So thank you so much for sharing with us uh, your vast knowledge. Speaking of vast knowledge, Tori, we on this show, we not only provide a skeleton from our closet, but we also provide a key for people that has been helpful to us lately in understanding something about life or myth or history. Tori, what did you bring to the people today for your skeleton key? Well, I brought a song. Ooh. I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to butcher your ears. Please. Could we, um, <laughs> could we beg you to sing it and make it happen? No, no? we would lose listeners at a rapid rate. Um, <laughs> But as a classic kid from the 90s, I love a good mixtape. And Mm. I used to, I don't know, this is another admission, I read a lot of fan fiction. And so I think of, when I think of characters, I think of songs that amplify them. So my skeleton key for Loki was Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. I was like, what song feels like him? And that song was it. And it just- doesn't it fit so it well? It does. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tori, you are constantly just a box of surprises when it comes to these skeleton keys. I, I love, I never know what you're going to bring. That is brilliant. Please allow me to introduce myself. I, I'm Come telling on. you, that is, that's a powerful song. That's and a like, really even just like lines, song. like, like when he's talking, like, I watched while your kings and queens like fought for decades. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing over the gods they made. Just thinking of like this character who's watching the world kind of implode from an outsider's point of view or maybe dipping his toe in. And obviously it's it's supposed to be the devil as the as the deity, but I just thought of Loki. Because there's a sense of there's a sense of fun. There's a sense of sadness to the song that I think is underlying of like kind of observing this happening in the world that just it screamed Loki to me so that was really key I even like when I was reading about him I was just listening to that song that uh you know I I've always been intrigued by that song and I've never really connected it to you know the the Loki archetype but I now will never hear that song by the Rolling Stones the same way thank you Tori Yates or I also brought something from pop culture to um the conversation today is my skeleton key. I, I brought a graphic novel series and it came out in 1989 and it was produced by DC Comics. And I'll, I'll tell you that Norse mythology, while fascinating, I love uh, Neil Gaiman's um, books uh, that deal with Norse mythology. I love the unpacking that pop culture has done around Norse mythology. But like any other tradition of mythology. Norse mythology can be difficult to follow. We can yeah. really get tied up and, uh, you know, oh, which character is this and what do they do and what who's, who's this god? Who? Who's related to who? I mean, it's hard enough to follow with mythologies that we are, are more exposed to, you know, like Greek and Roman and some of those mythologies. But obviously, Norse mythology has all its own interconnectedness of characters and archetypes and things of this nature. And for me, being a visual person, it helps to see these narratives, these characters, these stories put out in a graphic form. And 
I, I tell you, I, I looked long and hard to find a, a good unpacking of Norse mythology. And I found the, the Ring of, of Niblung. And the Ring of Niblung is, is this really classic tale, you know, from Norse mythology. And it is also one of the more visual uh, mythological narratives. And in this four-part series that DC put out, Roy Thomas, Gil Kane, and Jim Woodring, they really take the story above and beyond just what the source text offers us. And they really amplify these characters and these stories in a way that sparks the imagination. And, And here's why I say that. When I think about the ring uh, of Niblung. I don't think about the images from this book. I think about the images that have been created in my own head. But the images that were created in my head are an amplification, a reimagining from the images that I first encountered in this graphic novel series. So really? to me, yeah, to me, that's, that's good storytelling. That's good mythology. Wow. And I think it's it's really important too, I think, with Loki, the visual yeah. is really key. And I think is a big, especially obviously in the Marvel iteration, people are, are drawn to his. He's a very distinctive look. Yeah. But even in the Norse mythology, the fact that he shapeshifts, yeah. the fact that he becomes these different visuals, I think that's kind of what makes him so iconic. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. That that is so connected to, you know, this modern take that Marvel's done on Loki, especially in the the Disney Plus series, because it's such a powerful moment when Loki encounters all the other visual representations of Loki. When Loki encounters all the other Lokis, it, it works on so many levels. It works on this multiverse level that they're trying to to, you know, unpack and deal with. But it also works on this visualization level of, you know, we we like to think that our ideas about what these mythological characters look like are based on photos or paintings, you know, of the actual, and these people didn't exist. It's any sort of, you know, representation of these characters comes out of someone's imagination. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's an entire conversation in and of itself is why do we imagine certain characters to look like this? Because the descriptions of these characters in the source texts are are brief at best. Which but I think shows you too the power of the imagination that the people who were writing these things down were like, we don't need to give them they were six too. And yeah. they had like they didn't need to do that because there's a yeah. power in how the listener or how the reader visualizes these characters, they're going to resonate differently for everyone. So there is a different Loki for everyone. Yes. Yes. So that's my skeleton key uh, for the week. If if you get a chance and find it in an old comic shop or go to eBay and and pick up this four book series from DC from 1989, The Ring of Nibelung. And I, I think it'll give you an entirely different appreciation for uh, Loki and, and who Loki is. I'm going to read it. Oh, you should. I think you'll <laughs> love it. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Well, Tori, you know, as, as we wrap things up here, I love the fact that Disney has brought this, what, what we might say is a uncommon or rare 
mythological character or figure to the forefront of cultural discussion. In some ways, maybe Disney is uh, uh, paying for past sense of what they did to some of the fairy tales, maybe. Um, but but I'm really I'm really glad to see, you know, Loki have uh, such a place in the cultural discussion. And, and I'm I'm really thrilled to see people like like Scott that, that we had on the show today be able to unpack these characters for us in ways that affect our everyday lives. That it's not just a character in a story, but we're we're really talking about who we are in ourselves. Yeah, there's there's definitely I think a sense especially with Loki that we can all respond to. That sense of we all have done bad, we've all done good. We're all just trying to figure it out. Yeah. And that's where Loki sits. Yeah. That's that is where Loki sits. And where we sit is on the online space. Tori, where can people get a hold of us if they're looking to find us? You can always shoot us an email at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media at skeletonkeyspod, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Tori Yatesor. And I'm on Instagram at Telling a Better Story and on Twitter at John, J O H N K B U C H E R. This has been quite a tricksterish episode on many fronts, Tori, but <laughs> I can't wait to see what we'll talk about next time on Skeleton Keys. You've been listening to the Skeleton Keys podcast with Tori Yates Orr and John Booker, a podcast that unlocks the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. Contact us at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at skeletonkeyspod. Skeleton Keys is a production of Sideshow Media Group. 